Why does bad exist? I mean, what would, what would be your story if someone asked you from a philosophical standpoint, from a religious standpoint, even from a non-religious standpoint, why does bad exist in the world? And the reason why this question is so big, it is the number one reason why people give, atheists give, for not believing in God. Steve Jobs, whom I'm, I'm a big fan of with his work at Apple, but Steve Jobs went to church when he was a kid. And when he was a young teenager, according to Steve, if he's telling the truth about it, but according to Steve, he took a magazine picture of starving kids to his youth pastor and said, if there's a God, explain this. And, and the pastor, according to Steve Jobs, didn't explain it to his satisfaction. So from that point on, he became a non-theist, although he kind of waffled a little bit at the end of his life. But he was a non-theist because he said the fact that evil exists in the world means that there cannot be a God. But the truth of the matter is, and again, I don't want to spend much time from, you know, speaking from a philosophical standpoint, but even asking the question why evil exists is a tacit endorsement of the existence of God. And I'll explain why. There's no way of knowing that something is bad or evil if there's not an authoritative source to declare it so. For instance, if a tsunami hits an ocean community and wipes out the lives of thousands and thousands of people, who's to say that's bad? That might be nature's way of keeping down overpopulation. And who's to say it's bad because there may be more resources to go around for the people who are living. If you look at things from a pure Darwinian standpoint of the survival of the fittest, and indeed, you might be able to make the argument that it's not bad. Let's make it more personal. What if thieves break into the, your neighbor's home down the street from you and they take all their stuff? Who's to say that's wrong? Maybe there's no such thing as, as private ownership of possessions anyway. And beyond that, who's to say that the thieves who broke in and stole the stuff didn't need it more than the people who own the stuff? You see, you see what I'm saying? Just asking the question, why does evil exist? The very, <laughs> the very admission that evil exists is at least a tacit endorsement or passive endorsement of the existence of God. It's like every year in New York around Christmas time, the non-theist community will buy signs to put on buses that says you can be good without God, but that's not possible because who would determine what good is? And so with that, I'm not, I'm not gonna waste any more time on the philosophical question because I think deep down inside, we all know evil does exist. Whatever your viewpoint about the existence of the Almighty, I think we all know that there is bad, there is evil, there is injustice, there is pain, there is death in our world. So regardless of how we would answer this question, why, I think we all know that there is evil in our world. There is evil in nature. Um, it's here in Kansas, we're, we're getting close to the tornado season. Now, I don't know about you, but when the tornado siren sounds, I go to my basement. I'm scared of tornadoes. I mean, tornadoes are bigger than I am. So I, I know there's evil in, in culture. I mentioned tsunamis a moment ago. This morning, I just flipped on the news, and they have great floods in Louisiana that have already cost several lives. And you and I could go on for a long time talking about earthquakes and natural disasters. And then we know that there is evil or bad in culture because people do bad things that wind up harming others. People hurt, they rob, they assault, they cheat, they lie. 
And because of that, we all suffer because there is evil in our culture. And I think if we were to be honest with ourselves today, at least I'm, I'm going to make this submission, there is evil in me. I, I know that. There has been, ever since the meter of my memory started running, no one had to coach me on how to lie. I came by it naturally. Nobody had to coach me how to look out for my own interests. It came naturally to me. I, I, no, one, no one instructed me on how to be selfish or how to be angry and express that anger in an unhelpful, unhealthy way. So I, I believe no matter what we believe about the existence of God or the origin of life, I really do believe when it's all said and done, we're, we're going to all have to agree that evil does exist in our world in many forms. It exists in nature, it exists in culture, and at least I think some of us would say, yes, indeed, there are problems within me. I cannot claim to be 100% good. So the question that I think we ought to ask today is, where does it come from? And why does it exist? You know what I find interesting about the Bible? Did you know that in the Bible, the scripture talks about a time before evil existed? And interestingly, it's in the first two chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2. There was a time before there was hate or prejudice or hurt or evil or natural disasters. And scripture talks about a time in the future when the world will be without these things. Interestingly, that's in the last two chapters of the Bible. Don't you find that interesting? The first two chapters of the Bible tell us about a world with no evil, and the last two chapters of the Bible tell us about a world with no evil. I mean, let me, let me read this to you. In Genesis 1.31, the Bible says, God saw everything that he created that it was good. That's in Genesis. The world was all good. And then in Revelation 24, the next, the last chapter of the Bible, it says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. <laughs> Strange, isn't it? First two chapters of the Bible, nothing wrong in the world. The last two chapters, nothing wrong in the world. But the 1169 chapters in between is a very screwed up, messed up world. But it's the story of how the world got messed up and the story of God's plan to bring us back. And so for just a few moments today, I, I know it's not as exciting as next week's sermon will be when we talk about why Jesus died for us, or the week after when we talk about the resurrection. But I think we ought to talk today for just a few moments about why the world became messed up. If you want a thumbnail description or a thumbnail explanation for it, I think the greatest verse in the Bible is Romans chapter 5 in the 12th verse. Because in, in one succinct statement, God tells us why the world is screwed up. Let me read it to you. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. Now, I, I know that not everyone believes the Bible, and if you're not sure that you do, I'm so thankful that you're here today. But let me just at least tell you what the Bible says, and then you can take it into consideration. The Bible tells us that evil exists in our world because of, of an event. In fact, for many years, people who believed in the Bible called this the fall. We don't use that term as much anymore, but, but it's interesting that it wasn't called the decline or it wasn't called the slippage. 
Because according to scripture, the reason why the world has evil, suffering, sorrow, and injustice is because of an event, a single event. And Romans tells us that that event was Adam's sin. And the Bible says when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Now, that's going to be a hint of where we're going to go a lot today. Notice that it speaks of sin almost in a personification. Those of you who teach grammar, you know that that is actually a personification of something that we normally think of as an activity. When when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death. So look at this. Death spread to everyone. Well, that's not fair, right? I mean, our first father screwed up, so why are the rest of us affected? Well, Paul tells us in the next phrase, for everyone's sin. And one more time, let me, read, let me read that again. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world, Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone's sin. So when Adam sinned, the whole human race fell. But it isn't, and here's the thing that's important. It's not just human beings that are screwed up by sin, by Adam's sin. In Romans chapter 8, verse 20, the Bible says the creation was subjected to futility. Satan knew what he was doing. When he lured our first parents into sinning, he understood that he was not only screwing up God's creation of human beings, he was screwing up the world. And so when Adam sinned, the human race fell, and it affects you and me because we are born to Adam's family. Now, just to go through how it happened real quickly, Scripture tells us that God created the man and the woman. Stephen talked about that last week, creation. And then when he put them in this perfect environment in the garden before there were any problems, the Lord commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil for when you eat of it, you, surely die, you will surely die. Now, from time to time, I've been in dialogues with, with non-theists or skeptics. And, and they will say to me, wow, that's your God. He wanted to keep them from knowledge. Read the whole statement. He didn't want to keep them from knowledge. Adam and Eve were far smarter than you and I are because their minds were not subject to what we're reading about here today. But the Bible doesn't say that God wanted to keep them from the tree of knowledge. Look at this from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Up until this point, Adam and Eve didn't know evil. They didn't know racism. They didn't know injustice. They didn't know cheating. They didn't know lying. They didn't know the dark side. And so God said to them, look, leave the tree alone because I don't want you to know the dark side. But along comes Satan. And look at what Satan said. Satan said, you will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You know, it's interesting to me that fiction a lot of times, and especially in superhero fiction, gets pretty close to the truth. Because what scripture is talking about here is sin is like the dark side. And God is saying, look, Adam and Eve, you don't want to let this into your life because if you let it in, there will be something that comes into your life that you will not be able to control. Well, we won't spend a whole lot of time here. We know that Adam and Eve both disobeyed God. They sinned. That's what Paul said. When they sinned, sin entered the world. Now, later, when God comes along in chapter 3 to confront them with what they've done wrong, God starts getting specific about what's going to happen in the world because of their sin. He tells them that work will turn unpleasant. 
He tells them that the man and woman will have a hard time getting along. And however long ago that was, that's still being true. He told them that nature would turn ugly. There would be thorns and thistles. He told them that there was pain and suffering. And yes, he told them that death was now going to be part of the world and that they would experience the ugliness and the hurt of life until death came. Now, just asking the question as we sort of take a sum total here, what was it that caused the collapse of God's creation? And the answer is sin. Now, one of the things I've experienced is, as, a, as I've communicated these, these thoughts through the years is that people laugh when they look at that and they say, I cannot believe that all the problems in the world came about over a piece of fruit. I want you to think about something for a moment. We might laugh about a piece of fruit in chapter 3, but we're not laughing in chapter 4. Because what started out as a piece of fruit in chapter 3 turns to murder in chapter 4 as a brother kills his brother. So let's be straight on something. It's not over a piece of fruit. See, here, here is something I think that will really help us when we think about sin and the problem that it creates in our world. We tend to think about sin as acts or deeds of sin. We, we look at a particular behavior or something and we ask a question, is that a sin or how bad a sin is it? Well, when you look at sin from the biblical perspective, even though it may manifest itself in deeds and acts, sin is a force. That's our problem. See, the problem that I have in my life is not that I've committed acts of sin as much as the fact that I, I have a force within me. I have a dark side within me. And that was what God was saying to Adam and Eve is, look, you don't want to let this dark side into your life because when you let it into your, this is so big, when you let sin into your life, there will be absolutely nothing you can do about it. Can I say that one more time? God was saying to Adam, please don't let this into your life because when you do, you will let a force into your life that you can do absolutely nothing about. So if I don't accomplish anything else with this message, I, I just hope that I can pull us back from thinking about sin in, from specific acts or specific deeds of sin. And I want us to think about the fact that it is a force within us. Let me give you a great verse that will help explain this. The Apostle Paul is writing in Romans chapter 6 and 7 about the battle that Christians have. Because see, here's the thing. When you accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you still have that force within you. You still have, I mean, don't, wouldn't you agree with that? Those of you who have accepted Jesus, don't you still have a dark side? Lord knows I do. But you also have God's spirit living within you. So Paul is talking about this head-knocking battle that goes on inside the heart and the life of every Christian. But he's going to talk to us about what is in us in regard to the dark side. Listen to the language that he uses. Paul said, I have discovered this principle of life that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. Could I just like put an amen in there right there? Anybody else? Any, any, he's got any sisters or brothers here today? I mean, this is Paul. This is maybe the greatest Christian who ever lived outside of Jesus. And Paul has said, I've discovered this problem that I have. And when I want to do the right thing, I just keep screwing up. Look at this. I love God's law with all my heart. New Spring, are you listening? But there is another power in me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave. Now, I don't know what Paul's problems were. You and I have different, we have different problems in our lives. 
mean, I don't know, was it a drinking problem? I don't think so. Was it lust? Was it slothfulness? Was it gambling? I don't know what his issue was. He doesn't say. He just says, I have a force within me. And when I want to do the right thing, I wind up doing the wrong thing. And he said, this force makes me a slave. See, this is why God was saying to Adam and Eve, please don't let this into your life. Because when you let it in, it'll be a force you can't do anything about. Hey, I know I'm going to sound facetious here, but just work with me for a moment. Have you ever noticed that good doesn't work that way? You know, if you let evil into your life, it has, a, it has, it has an enslaving capability. I mean, there are a lot of people that are alcoholics today. They, they didn't set out to be alcoholics. They just started drinking. I mean, there are a lot of people today that have a sexual addiction. They didn't start out to have a sexual addiction. They just got into a relationship and it went south, and they got into another relationship, and it went south, and they started checking out pornography, and before long, now it's got, it's got a hold on them. And, and many times there are people that have addictions that hate the very things that they're doing, but like Paul said, there's a force within them that's enslaving. Sin just works that way. Don't you wish good worked that way? I mean, can you imagine what it would be like to say, you know, I was dealing with a difficult person the other day, and, um, you know, just... I found a way to love them, and ever since that time, I just cannot help myself. I've just been loving difficult people. I, I would love to just get a hold of myself, but I just find myself loving difficult people all the time. I'm just addicted to it. <laughs> or my favorite one is long-suffering. You know, the Bible talks about long-suffering. That means when somebody's creating a problem, you just live with it, live with it, live with it, find a way to be gentle and peaceful. I mean, it's like, my husband is just crazy. He drives me crazy over and over and over again, does the same things. I ask him to stop. I ask him to, to help me. He won't help me with anything. But you know, I just found a way to be long-suffering. And you know, next thing I know, I'm just long-suffering with everybody. I just put up with everything anymore. I just can't help myself. No, good doesn't work that way, does it? But sin does. See, sin is a force. And that's why when you let it into your life, as not only we were born into it, but with specific things of sin, when we let it into our lives, it can, it can actually get control of us. Now, real quickly, I want you to see what our first parents tried to do because what they're going to discover is there's nothing they can do, but they're going to try. And they, they try three things that you and I try. And I think without even elaborating on these, I think you and I are going to come up with examples in our own lives where we try to do these three things about sin. The first thing they try to do is they try to hide. And look, look at Genesis chapter 3, uh, verse 8. They hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They hid. And it's interesting to me, when God asked Adam why he hid, why Adam tells God that he hid. He says, I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. In other words, Adam said, I know something's wrong with me, so I just didn't want to show up. And that's one of the things that we do with sin. We just know something's wrong, so we don't show up. We try to find a way to hide. Then the second thing that Adam did was he tried to cover up. They knew they were naked, so verse 7 says they sewed fig leaves together. Now, I don't know anything about fig leaves, but I've read on them, and I know that fig leaves have little points, little spires, and they create rashes and redness just between you and me covering areas of your body with fig leaves, not the smartest thing in the world. 
And, but isn't it interesting after all these years? What do we always say? I mean, we, it seems like every year there's some sort of national scandal and we hear the same thing over again. It's not the crime that gets you, it's the cover-up. The third thing that Adam, <laughs> Adam did, and this is a big one today. In fact, it's, it, there's a whole industry on this one. When God said to Adam, did, did, you, did you sin? Did you do what I told you not to do? I love Adam's answer. Adam said, yes, I did what you told me not to do, but it was that woman <laughs> that you gave me. It's not my fault. I did it, but it's my parents' fault. I was raised in the wrong place. I didn't get the toy I wanted when I was six years old. You know, I didn't get into the good school, and they were always, the police always have it in for me. Yeah, Adam, Adam tried that. And, and isn't, isn't it interesting, after all these years, those are the three things that human beings try to do most about sin. They try to disappear, they try to cover it up, or they blame somebody else. But at the end of the day, it didn't work. New Spring, because nothing, there's nothing a human being can do about sin. Can we just take a deep breath for a moment? See, here's the thing. I think people run from God because they discover that. They discover that there's nothing that they can do about sin. They try different things. They try self-help. They try religion. This is the reason why many of us tried religion and we finally just threw up our hands because we discovered we can't do anything about sin. It's just not within us. You know, do you know in Genesis chapter 3, when God showed up to confront Adam and Eve about sin, he did not tell them what they could do about it because there wasn't anything they could do. He didn't tell them to pay for it because they couldn't pay for it. He didn't tell them to quit because they weren't going to be able to quit. He didn't tell them to try to do better because trying to do better wouldn't be good enough. I find it so interesting that on the day when God showed up to conflict or to confront Adam and Eve about their sin, instead of telling them what they could do about it, he promised to send them a person. Because see, you and I can't do anything about sin. There had to be somebody who could come into our world, not tainted by sin, who could defeat sin. See, so often, and I'll talk about this next week, I'll talk about how that we are saved by Jesus' death. When he hung on the cross and paid for our sins, the blood that came out of his body, we, he, 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 he paid for our, our acts of sin that way. And we so often talk about being saved by his death, and that's factual. But what we also need to point out is that we're also saved by his life. Because when Jesus lived that perfect life, when he ran the table for 33 years and never let sin into his life and then took that perfect life and laid it on a Roman cross, not only did he pay for our acts of sin, the bill that we've racked up, he also defeated the power of sin. He defeated the dark side. This is why in the garden, you know, Satan tried everything he could to try to lure Jesus. You know, here's the thing, and I'm sorry for getting off on this topic. You know, I've heard great Christian songs about how the, the devil danced with glee when Jesus died on the cross. No, he didn't. He never questioned that Jesus would come out of the grave. He knew God too well. He just questioned that an innocent man would lay down on a Roman cross and die for others. Satan just couldn't get it into his head that somebody could love somebody 
that much because Satan doesn't have any love within him. Always remember, Satan never questioned that Jesus would come out of the grave. He just questioned that he would go to the cross, and he pulled all the stops out to keep him from doing it because, see, here's the thing. When Jesus lived that perfect life and he was willing to put that life on a Roman cross, he didn't just pay for your and my acts of sin. He defeated the dark side. That's what the Bible tells us. I remember discovering the verse I'm about to give you when I was a teenage preacher. And it captured me then, and it still captures me now. Let me read you one of the most amazing verses in the Bible. And if you haven't learned to love it yet, I hope you'll mark it, memorize it, and learn to love it. I memorized it in an older translation, so I'm going to read it out, out of the New American Standard. He, that's God the Father, has made him, Jesus Christ, to be sin. Now hold on for a moment. It'd be strong if the Bible says God the Father made him to pay for sin. But that's not what it says. It says he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Now, if, if the Bible says he made him to be sin who did no sin, that would still be powerful, but I want you just to slow down and take a breath and think about this. He made him to be sin who never even knew it. Hey, at the risk of maybe asking you a question that would lead to embarrassment, let me ask you a question. When you think back on the dark sins of your life, can you remember when you were introduced to them? Maybe you didn't commit the sin, but you were just introduced to it. It's, it's, it's a different thing to be introduced to sin and to commit it. Maybe somebody's here and, and, you, and you, you got hooked on porn, but the first time you saw it, it was an accident, or it's just a friend showed you something, and you're a kid, and you didn't even know what you're going to see. You got introduced to it. But according to the Bible, Jesus never was even introduced to sin. See, what God is going to do is he's going to set up this enormous contrast. He is going to show us this pure, perfect, holy person. But God is going to say, not only did he have to experience the payment for sin, God actually made him to become sin for us. I'm not really sure what that means. I just have a hunch or have some thoughts about it. Next week, when we talk about Jesus dying on the cross, I'll tell you about the moment, about halfway through the crucifixion, probably about three hours into it, where everything turned dark. And out of the darkness, Jesus cries out this question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, he, he could deal with people spitting at him, pulling out his beard. He could deal with people yelling insults at him. He could even deal with his own followers abandoning him. But he'd always had the relationship with his father from eternity past. But now all of a sudden that wonderful relationship of perfect love between father and son is ripped apart because God the father turns his back and leaves Jesus to die in the darkness all by himself. Why? Because in that moment he wasn't just paying for sin. In God's way of thinking he actually became sin. Every crime, every felon is ever committed in every prison. Every evil thought ever thought by any mind, every genocide hatched by a despot in the history of the world, Jesus became all the sin of the world that he might eradicate it and not only pay the cost for the, rack, the, the bill of sins that you and I have committed, but that he could actually defeat the force. 
for he has made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Let me ask you a question. You know, people always talk about, are there many ways to heaven? I'm so, I, you know, it's, you can kind of deal with that question however you want to. I can just tell you that according to the Bible, God only knows one. See, the basis of my going to heaven, I'm a flawed, broken sinner. I not only have a huge bill of sins, and, and I can't do anything about it in my life. It's a force that is in me. The only reason why somebody like me could go to heaven is that Jesus Christ took my place. He actually became sin for me so that God could punish him in my place. But that's not all. It's not just that my record at this point is vacuous, that I have done no sin. My record now has all the righteousness of Christ. You see, God clicked and dragged my sin and put it on Jesus, and then he clicked and dragged Christ's righteousness, and he put it on me so that when God opens up the book of life and he looks at me standing before him someday and he sees the name Stephen Mark Hoover, it's going to say right below that, see the record of Jesus Christ, because my sin was put on him so that his righteousness can be put upon me. You tell me one more basis to getting into heaven that's equal to that, and I'll listen. I'll listen. So how do you get it? How do you get in on that? If this is not my favorite verse in the Bible, it's just right up there at the top. Romans chapter 4, verse 5. Scripture says, to the one... Who believes. See, our series is called I Believe. Believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith, her faith, is credited for righteousness. Okay, let me just talk to those of you who have been a Christian for a while. You ever have a downtime in your Christian life and you just kind of like, and you know, here's the thing. Satan will work on you. You know, people think that Satan is like this, you know, caricature or monster and stuff. Satan just, he's, an, he's a spirit and he tries to influence us to get our thinking screwed up. When you're going through a down season, Satan will come along to you and he'll say something like this. How can somebody who screws up as much as you do go to heaven? Now I want you to think about this statement. And this is one of my favorite statements in the Bible. The Bible says God justifies the ungodly. Do you ever feel ungodly? There's something God can do for you. In fact, that's what Jesus came for. Jesus came for the ungodly. You say, I'm so good, I could never consider myself ungodly. Jesus can't do anything for you. He is the God who justifies the ungodly. Now, that verb is very important to me because it doesn't say he acquits the ungodly. I mean, sometimes people get acquitted in court cases. We think they're actually guilty, but they get acquitted, you know? And it doesn't even say that God declares us not guilty. It says he justifies us. If you're ungodly, God justifies. Who does he justify he justifies the person who believes. To him who believes on Jesus. In other words, if we, if we put our faith and confidence in Jesus, God declares us innocent because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. You say, well, that doesn't sound fair. You know what? It's not. It really isn't. You know, through the years... And, and I told you about Steve Jobs earlier. I, I, I told you that a lot of people don't believe in God because there's injustice. And they'll ask questions like, well, you know, if God is all-powerful, 
Why doesn't he just stop people from doing wrong? You ever think about that? Mary Alice has something she loves to tell in Starting Point, and it, her words are so good, I just read her words. She says, several years ago, I was very disgusted by a mess constantly present in the doorway of the East Building. That's where they have starting points. It was clearly created by some birds who had built their nest in the eaves of the building just above the entrances. I'd mentioned it once or twice to our maintenance director and was troubled that after weeks went by, the mess never seemed to go away. When I brought it up again, he explained that they had cleaned up the mess on the ground and removed the nest multiple times, but the barn swallows just rebuilt their nest again and again. Marianas adds barn swallows can build nests in less than 24 hours. Because our crews couldn't prevent the birds from continuing to build their nest there, he said, the only way to get rid of the disgusting mess is to kill all the birds. Which, of course, we could not do. Marianas says barn swallows are protected, by the way. You see, in order to stop people from doing bad things, God would have to kill all the birds. He'd have to kill all the sinners. And you and I are sinners. And there's your answer. N- no, it's, there is injustice in the world. But I want you to think about that for just a moment. Because here's the thing. When you think about injustice, there's not only negative. See, people think about injustice only in terms of negative injustice. But there's positive injustice too. For just a few moments, I want you to think about the injustice scale. Imagine a number line, zero in the middle, negative numbers and positive numbers, and we're just going to call this the injustice scale. Well, let's talk about the one we're most familiar with. Let's let's talk about negative injustice. And we're going to just start off with not so serious, and we're going to get to more and more serious as we go down the scale. Mm, A little bit left of zero. Let's just say a person makes less than she's worth. She's very successful but makes minimum wage. Well, that's injustice. Let's go a little further down the negative injustice scale. Here's a person who works for 30 years for a company very faithfully, only to walk in one morning and find out that he's laid off. And that's not fair. That's further down the scale. A little further down the negative injustice scale. Parents lovingly raise their kids. They invest in the kids, spend all kinds of time and energy and love and money on these kids. And now the kids grow up and they never call the parents, never come see them. And that's unjust. Let's go quite a bit further down the negative scale of injustice. Here's a sweet child, darling child, who contracts cancer. That's not fair. A little further. Family of nice neighbors. They they bring food into others when they're suffering. These are just sweet neighbors. These are the kind of neighbors everybody loves to have in their neighborhood. But one night there's a break-in and the family gets murdered and killed. Let's go quite a bit further down the negative scale of injustice. And you have a despot who kills six million people of the Jewish race by putting them in boxcars and gassing them in ovens. What would you find if you took that scale all the way to the end and found the ultimate injustice? Because in negative injustice, we have innocence, and ill treatment, what would be the greatest gap between innocence and ill treatment? If you took the injustice scale all the way to the end, you would find the perfect son of God hanging on a cross. Now, let's go back to zero. Let's talk about positive injustice. Let's talk about people getting things they don't deserve. 
If you go just a little bit right of zero, maybe you just have a person not a very good worker but makes more than they deserve. A little further up, somebody wins a lottery. A little further up, you got a lousy guy who marries a sweet gal. What was the old country and western song? Good-hearted woman married to a good-timing man. That's unjust. Let's go quite a bit further up the injustice scale, positive injustice. Japan attacks America, and America rebuilds Japan. Well, that's amazing. Quite a bit further up, you have a murderer who gets pardoned by the governor. What would you find if you went all the way to the end of the scale of positive injustice? You would have me in heaven. No, it isn't just. It's not fair. But that is what God did because he loved you and me. And guys, you and I are infected with a force. Our parents made the choice, Adam and Eve. But we're infected with a force that we can't do anything about. But God in his love made a way for you and me to be restored back to existence without suffering, pain, sorrow, death, illness, crime. And here's the thing. This and I'm through because I'm already two minutes over time. I see the clock. Our first parents got us in trouble by making a choice. And you and I get restored to God by making a choice. They chose against God. God invites us to choose for him. And someday when I stand before God, even though I'm guilty of many things, I will not stand before God as a condemned sinner. I will stand before God as his child, forgiven and completely restored. I am two minutes and 30 seconds over time, but can I tell you one of my favorite stories? Through the years, I don't know, as a layman, I ever had a closer friend here at New Spring than Paul Clark. Paul was the longest serving judge in Sedgwick County. And he was... He was just a great man, one of our deacons for many years. But Paul and I would go to lunch probably every two weeks or so, and I could share things with him I couldn't share with anybody. But I remember about 20 years ago, the first time Paul ever invited me to go to lunch. I'd never been to his courtroom before, so I went downtown. It was a cold January day. I had an overcoat on. I remember that. Looked at the directory there in Sedgwick County Courthouse, and I saw Paul Clark's courtroom. So I rode the elevator up and walked into the back of his courtroom and sat on the back bench. And I picked up enough quickly to see there were a couple of young men who Paul had just declared guilty of drug dealing, and this was not the first time. Paul was, Paul was, here's the thing, for those, many of you, some of you can remember Paul here at New Spring. Paul was a quintessential judge. If there was a judge out of central casting, it would have been Paul. Tall, angular, very dignified, those glasses perched on his nose. I've seen Paul declare people guilty and then send them to, you know, death. I mean, he, he was a quintessential judge, but I never knew a more tenderhearted, loving man than Paul Clark. Anyway, I'll tell you that for a reason. I just, I walk in, I laid my overcoat down, and I looked up at Paul, and there were those two young men who were standing before him, and Paul had just declared them guilty. And he looked up at that moment, and he saw me in the back of the courtroom. And he paused, and he said, well, I have a personal matter to attend to, and I will come back after lunch, and I will render my sentence. And I looked at those two young men 
who were trembling as they were thinking about. They had to wait now for another hour and a half or so to find out how long they were going to prison. And I realized I was the personal matter. Now, let me just tell you what I felt right then, that moment. I thought, I am so glad I'm meeting Paul as a friend (laughs) and not as somebody to be sentenced. But I'll tell you something, the other thought that I had, I thought, who's to say that I'm any better than those two young men who are being sentenced? We went on to lunch. I've thought about that many times. Listen to me. I'm going to face God, and it's going to be a personal matter that God has to attend to because I'm his child. I'm so glad I'm going to meet God as a friend and not somebody to be sentenced in his courtroom. I deserve it. It's not fair for Jesus to bear it, but he did, and he offers me a way out, and he offers it to you. I am now five minutes and 20 seconds into overtime. (laughs) Clock is... I think I'm going to see it in nightmares. <laughs> but I, I, I just, can we leave today without giving you an opportunity? I mean, here's the thing. Have you been carrying a weight of sin? Have you been carrying guilt? Aren't you tired? Aren't you ready to lay it down? Aren't you tired of hiding? Aren't you tired of covering up? Aren't you tired of blaming others? Wouldn't you like to be free? I mean, wouldn't you like to know what it's like to be forgiven even though you don't deserve it? Well, the Bible says if you're willing to believe, you can receive it. Now, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray a prayer with you. These are not magic words, but these are words that call out to God to ask for forgiveness and restoration. And if you want to pray with me, pray with me right now, please. Father God, I am a sinner. I don't deserve to go to heaven. But you say you've made a way. I believe in Jesus I believe he died for me. I believe he arose from the grave. Would you forgive me and make me your child? In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if you just prayed that prayer, please come get a gift. All you got to do is go back to guest services. Just say, I prayed with Mark, and they will give you this. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next weekend.